Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litbeck, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brandon Mills about his book, The World Colonization Made, The Racial Geography of Early American Empire, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Dr. Mills teaches at the University of Colorado, Denver. The World Colonization Made rethinks the commonly told history of the African Colonization Society and the colonization movement writ large. Exploring how this movement evolved over the course of the 19th century, Dr. Mills illustrates how we must think of the colonization movement as not just a response to domestic concerns, but as a step many Americans wish to take towards creating a U.S. empire. From the rise and fall of the colonization movement, Dr. Mills shows the many converging issues, political factors, and ideologies that went into what ultimately ultimately became a failed attempt at U.S. expansion. Dr. Mills, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project, why you decided to study it? Yeah, thanks. Um, really, the the origins of this project are long time ago, actually in my undergraduate days at Michigan State University. I, I wrote a senior thesis um, that was on early 20th century so-called back to Africa movements, um, proto kind of Garvey, uh, Marcus Garvey era movements in the early 20th century that were kind of in conversations about black nationalism and pan-Africanism. And, and so I was interested in questions about how African-Americans were conceiving of the relationship to Africa in, in that period. Um, and so I focused all my efforts on it then, but then when I got to graduate school, I, I started looking back to the pre-Civil War era and and thinking about the fact that there were similar ideas about return to Africa or or um, African-Americans creating colonies within Africa um, that were supported mainly by white politicians and reformers in the U.S. at the time, and that it, in fact, was opposed by most free African-Americans um, in that era. And so I, I really became fascinated by how pervasive and popular this idea was at this moment. Um, and I, over time, became immediately struck by the fact that while the U.S. was, you know, cr- creating an, an overseas colony um, and driven by an American colonization society that literally had the word colonization in its title, it was almost entirely um, discussed as separate from questions of, of U.S. empire, settler colonization, U.S. expansionism. It only occasionally, if you look at the literature on the subject, it, it touches on these so I, I really kind of asked why that was and and followed that thread um, to where it led me. And, and that's kind of the process that led to my dissertation and then um, into the book. So that's how I got there. <laughs> and we've kind of hinted at this already, but compared to these previous histories, you know, what are they actually saying and how do they frame, you mm-hmm. know, this entire colonization movement um, compared to the way that you are sort of expanding this to be, you know, a story of empire? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people have studied this topic over over the years, um, and there's a lot of great research out on it. It's certainly not ignored um, as as something a subject within U.S. history, but primarily, what you see is it's studied through the lens of the politics of slavery and anti-slavery in the U.S. Um, or through the politics of of kind of black political activism as they emerge in the antebellum era. And I think those are really useful and extremely important ways of understanding the significance of the movement, um, particularly if we look at how um, colonizationism was framed as a kind of a so-called moderate anti-slavery stance um, during the, the early years of the 19th century. Um, and then ultimately how African-Americans really developed a kind of uh, political identity in northern communities by opposing the movement by and large. And the the abolitionist movement's roots are really in um, in opposing colonizationism. And so that is the story that we, we've often thought of this as is really about these kind of domestic um, political concerns and the fact of of the the kind of form that that took, which was to create a colony outside then current U.S. borders across um, the Atlantic Ocean in, in Africa has been somewhat ancillary. And there have been ways to kind of explain why people had arrived at that, um, but, but not really interrogating what the meaning and significance of that, that kind of settlement is. And in addition, kind of looking broader than that. So, so while I don't, I, I do kind of approach this differently than those subjects. I incorporate many of the insights of that prior literature. Um, another way I kind of depart from the previous literature is focusing less on that formal colonization movement itself. Um, the, the American Colonization Society, which becomes the organization that's the primary vehicle for this, this um, idea, and the colony of Liberia in West Africa that becomes the, the, the primary site of, of the ambitions of colonizationists. And that has been covered extensively in this in this um, prior literature that I just referenced. But really, the way I thought about this more expansively and trying to contextualize it in a, in a deeper sense was thinking about the, the migration of this idea over time. Um, and my book kind of frames it from the American Revolution up through the U.S. Civil War. And thinking about how that idea of colonizationism or the ideology of colonizationism, a set of ideas that circulates, that was very popular and influential for nearly a century of the United States, um, first century of existence, basically. I'm thinking about how that evolves um, over time and what the, the implications of that was. So much of the book does orbit inevitably around the ACS and um, Liberia itself, because that is the kind of central core of the movement. But I try to really trace it to all the other places that that, that set of colonizationist ideas go. And I know for myself, you know, one of the things that you said in the beginning of that response was that, you know, this is a topic that, you know, has had plenty of attention um, in the past. And for myself, you know, I kind of I kind of chuckle at that because I think for us, it's like it's pretty, you know, we know about it. It's not exactly surprising, but I know for myself, I didn't learn about, you know, the colonization movement until sometime midway through college. And I was absolutely flabbergasted when I learned about it, especially that, you know, Liberia, the the modern country was actually just a colony of America for this purpose. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. I mean, it, I remember when I first encountered it was high school, you know, and it was literally a footnote, you know, in a, in probably a lecture that my high school history teacher mentioned, it was like one line, you know, and it, and it was often portrayed as a quote unquote refuge for former slaves, which in a sense it was, but didn't deal at all with the displacement of the indigenous peoples that were in that region, nor the fact that there was a lot of opposition to it among free African-Americans in the U.S. Um, for its racist ideas. And so the, the way, if you ever, if the kind of average person in the United States kind of encounters this idea, it's a very surface level kind of understanding of it. And yeah, once you get into um, deeper study of history, you, you learn more about it. And specifically if you're looking at slavery and anti-slavery, but it's, it's amazing how little people know about this um, in, in kind of the wider U.S. culture. And so you said that, you know, you're the sort of grand arc of your book goes from the American Revolution to the Civil War, roughly. And you kind of sketch out basically throughout the book how this movement evolved and everything. And so when looking at the years after the American Revolution, what form did colonization plans typically take? And why are these uh, sort of initial years so important? What I try to think about in the book is is this immediate post-revolutionary era um, in which we see colonization ideas really before they're a movement. Um, because, you know, the typically the way we, we frame colonizationism is leading up to, um, or, or the main event is the, the creation of the, the American Colonization Society in Liberia and, and that movement. But I wanted to focus some attention on this period of time when the ideas were very messy, incohate, uh, ill-formed and kind of all over the place in terms of where people were proposing colonies, what these colonies' relationship to the U.S. would be, and there was no formal organization that was advancing these. And so it's fascinating to look at uh, these colonies before they coalesce really into a movement. Um, and what I try to pay a lot of attention to in that um, period, which is roughly from the American Revolution till the form of the ACS um, formation of the ACS in the mid 1810s is that notably most of these plans were focused on North America. There were a handful that were interested in Sierra Leone, the already existing British colony that was similar to Liberia. But many of many American plans focused on creating colonies within the North American continent. And I think that's really important to understanding because it really plays into how the United States was evolving its own conception of itself as an empire, as 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 an empire on um, a settler empire on the continent of North America, it was planning to colonize um, in more indigenous territory and incorporate that into a political structure and state that um, was evolving rapidly during this period of time. And so the colonies that we see proposed in this kind of early post-revolutionary era um, spanned the continental territory um, that would eventually come to be claimed by the United States um, from um, parts of the old Northwest or what's the current Midwest, m uh, many parts of the Louisiana territory, Missouri territory, and even parts further West in the Rocky mountain region in California. And I'm trying to show really that moment of time when we see many white Americans were projecting these kind of fantasies or the, um, these ideas about a different racial geography of the United States empire in North America. Um, and they were very wide ranging. Um, they were, you know, not really organized in any sense. Um, but it's fascinating to kind of think about the fact that at that, this moment, they at least included a place for black settler colonies alongside white settler colonies, despite the fact that they were very provisional and circumscribed in the way um, these people were imagining them. 
So that's really, I think, important in terms of, of thinking about that era. But the other thing I think that is really important is, as, as you mentioned, it's coming after the American Revolution. And I think that this is being situated within the context of what many historians have characterized as the age of revolution is crucial here, that I characterize it in the book as in the context of counter-revolution and specifically um, the revolution that follows the, U- the American Revolution, um, the Haitian Revolution within um, the Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, um, which was, of course, an offshoot of the French Revolution. Um, and the Haitian Revolution, of course, is famously led by um, free people of color and enslaved people um, on the island of Saint-Domingue and was really led to a wave of fear among whites in the U.S. about republicanism or republican ideas being unleashed by the actions and autonomy of enslaved people. And so I think it's really crucial to think about the colonizationism is being developed in that crucible. And many of the early colonization proposals that I talk about in the book that are in North America are, um, are grappling with the idea of maybe fostering and managing colonies as a way to control um, those forces that they're con- concerned would be unbelieved, unleashed by the prospect of, of a slave revolution. And as you said, you know, these early plans in this early period is sort of, you know, really disorganized. There's no sort of, you know, defining, it's not really a movement yet, but as it began to sort of coalesce over time, what sort of defining doctrines um, sort of took the forefront and why? And particularly, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed reading in your work was the idea of racial republicanism. And so what is that and how did that play a role in all of this? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because I think it's really important to think about that formative moment when the colonization movement does coalesce and moves away because it shows the sets of ideas that do animate the movement and persist on, even as um, we retain some of those earlier ideas, particularly the idea um, that that persists of it being in the form of a settler colony. Um, but the term that you mentioned, racial republicanism, is a term that I, I kind of coined to use in the book as, as a way not to refer to something that was circulated at the time, which is to say that they, people weren't describing this in those terms. They weren't saying racial republicanism, but it's really a set of ideas that they're expressing, which is um, a, basically a simultaneous commitment to the the notion of self-government or, or republicanism and to maintaining or even harnessing racial difference and racial hierarchy as 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 wedded to republicanism. And so the basic idea there that was that black people um, could govern themselves but only under the kind of political conditions that were deemed appropriate um, by by whites in in their kind of minds. And so Ostensibly, it's, it's admitting the possibility that um, African-Americans could participate in, in self-government, but it was grounded in this really kind of clear racial distinctions that are emerging um, and maintaining the hierarchies that had been developing, of course, over the entire um, period of enslavement. And so what I, I try to show in the book is that despite the fact that we see this rhetoric uh, among whites that is really emphasizing a kind of separate political existence for African-Americans, whether it be on the North American continent or whether it be in Liberia. And this notion of potentially building a black republic um, in one of those places. The thing that is really consistent um, is that they were mostly concerned with constructing their own racial republic, a white racial republic within North America. So 
in a sense, this racial republicanism was, um, while it was the 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 idea was that um, non-white groups, and it's also applied to um, other groups like Native Americans, but but African Americans um, in particular could govern themselves. But the the fundamental goal was really to justify um, the racial kind of uh, structure of U.S. political life, and and that's kind of the fundamental. I think I'm um, driving force behind that, um, that, that idea. And you've mentioned Native Americans at a couple of uh, points here. And, you know, in particular with the sort of first years of this, uh, you know, quote unquote movement where it's not really a movement yet. And the idea of sort of just taking even more native lands to make colonies, you point out that there are sort of Native American or plans to colonize Native Americans themselves as well during this time period that um, those plans and the ideas that under underlay them are both sort of distinct but also have overlap with the sort of broader things that you're talking about with African colonization and the colonization of African Americans. And so what's going on there? Because I think that in particular is an idea or sorry, I should say a subject that even people familiar with African colonization haven't heard that much about. Yeah, it's it's something that you know you see come up previously in the literature every now and again. Um, it's been there's been a lot more attention to it recently, um, particularly with Nick Guyatt's book that came out a few years ago, uh, "Bind Us Apart," and that that book looked at it as well. There are a handful of other examples, but. I think it's really crucial to understand that relationship between colonizationism um, as it's expressed with African-Americans and other forms of, of colonizationism as they're, uh, as they're applied to native peoples. Um, and w- the way I try to think about it in the book is that these colonies for African-Americans are emerging within a backdrop in which the United States is rapidly colonizing indigenous lands in North America. And in the initial phases, as you mentioned, it's it's expressing itself in the idea that African-Americans themselves could participate in that, that they might form colonies that would maybe advance U.S. settlement in the West, um, participate as affiliated settler societies, or even independent republics that would be aligned with the U.S. Over time, this um, evolves into the African colonization movement, which all of the, the focus is on Africa. But you see, as the colonization movement formalizes itself on around the ACS, and colonizationism becomes a huge topic for discussion among politicians in the late 1810s and early 1820s, you see a lot of cross-pollination and overlap between colonizationist ideas. And particularly as um, many activists begin to think about them in the context of native peoples, um, which uh, colonizationism as as a term and, and we even see that that same word being used in certain uh, by certain activists to apply to both um, African Americans and Native Americans so one uh, figure I focus on in the book is is Isaac McCoy who's a Baptist minister who proposes a colony in the West that looked very similar to many um, uh, the kind of kind of pan uh, or sorry excuse me the, the racial republic that was imagined in Liberia, which is um, to say that it would bring together um, different groups of, of, of native peoples, different native nations into a kind of pan-Indian republic in the West. And this was to be a process that would be kind of managed and directed by whites to foster um, a, a, some kind of independent society that looked very similar um, to some, 
what was going on in Liberia. And many of these activists reference the same um, ideas or directly link their ideas to the colonization movement, use the rhetoric and language of it. And so you have the the movement between these, these sort of discourses happening at this time, and they're linked together conceptually at many moments. But what my book tries to point out is very notably, they met, met different fates as policies for the federal government, um, which is to say that the federal colonization policy um, during the 1820s and 1830s largely fails to materialize. And there's a lot of factors that I go into for this, um, but it's notable to, 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 to point out that Indian colonizationism, as it was conceived by uh, McCoy, doesn't quite materialize in the way that he envisions, but it does set the the um, the stage for what becomes federal removal policy and the creation of of what is known as Indian territory um, in in the West, and so we we do have um, we have this kind of moment at which both of these ideas are being discussed as something that the federal government would engage in um, removing what were seen as problematic or undesirable um, populations from the United States, racialized populations, and then creating kind of political structures that would be harnessing this, this notion of racial difference. But I think the, the crucial thing to think about for the larger narrative um, that I'm trying to talk about in the book is that we can see how these were pitched differently within the scope of U.S. empire um, and and. And I go into great detail about how there are distinctions that many policies or makers are are making between what they consider to be continental and overseas empire as being largely distinct phenomenon that the U.S. is engaging in, and that you know there is an idea that um, uh, a colony of of Native Americans in the West was acceptable within the scope of of what the United States was imagining uh, in terms of expansion on the continent primarily because it was driven by a desire for um, colonizing native lands um, that they wanted to um, to remove them from. But at the same time, um, an, a colony in, in, in West Africa was seen largely as being outside the scope of what the United States imagined itself to be to be um, engaged in as an empire. And, and you see a lot of examples of people trying to kind of split hairs about what the 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 notion of of the U.S. as an empire and what it looked like um, and what the, the scope and boundaries of that were, um, and and so I think it's really important to keep that conversation um, in in the back of our minds, particularly as the U.S. Um, you know late at later moments kind of discards many of those distinctions in looking overseas, but at this moment it's seen as a crucial one, perhaps a, a self justification for. Um, the the own imper- the imperatives of of whites to settle on native lands, but ultimately one I think that is important. Kind of thinking about the conceptual framework that we see um, both of these colonizationist ideas emerging in. And I know I particularly appreciated um, the material that you had on that because I think you know it's obviously difficult for any historian to try and, you know, cover a lot of material. And obviously when, you know, you're covering say race and slavery and everything like that and African-Americans in uh, the country, you know, that's one huge topic in and of itself. And so it's definitely hard to sort of branch out and incorporate things like um, subjects dealing with native Americans and indigenous people, but this sort of clear overlap um, 
that you are able to show there really sort of bolsters your argument in my case. And I, I really appreciated being able to see how these ideas are sort of circulating outside of just, you know, the distinct, you know, African colonization. And so one of the things that you um, look at later on are these events that you call colonization riots. And so what are these and what do they represent? So I use this term colonization riot um, basically to refer to groups of white Americans um, engaging in kind of disorganized um, street violence and mobs that were aimed at at um, black communities in roughly the eight, late 1820s throughout the early to mid 1830s. Um, and what you see in those, those um, mobs and violence are many of the, uh, the actions being kind of instigated in direct or indirect ways by um, colonizationist newspapers and newspaper editors who are advancing these ideas. The mob sometimes themselves endorsing um, colon- uh, colonization proposals or the ACS. Um, and so you have a kind of either implicit or explicit connection between the, the colonization movement and and these these um, various uh, actions against uh, African American communities um, in northern states. And sometimes these are referred to as anti-abolitionist riots or mobs, and they often were. They were they were at the moment um, when abolitionism was emerging, and, and that part of that story is 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 the relationship between colonizationism as a kind of anti-slavery view. Um, but I'm, I think it's important to think about them as colonization um, mobs, particularly because I'm interested in exploring how they represented a kind of popular expression of support for colonizationist ideas among certain groups of whites. Um, you primarily, we, we encounter colonizationism through the activities of the kind of middle class or upper class reformers who are endorsing these plans. And really it's many of the um, well-known political leaders um, throughout the first century of American life did in some way support this. And you had lots of prominent um, ministers and um, other reformers and activists supporting this, but you can see how this really was playing into popular racist animus against um, uh, black communities. And that's, and I think that's important because a lot of my book is focusing on um, analyzing how this Republicanism was applied to African-Americans in the context of the colonization movement that, that they, um, that they could embody the Republic ideal if they were separated from the U S in some ways. And, And what I'm trying to show with the colonization riots is that, um, really this, trying to reveal in a, a sense that this was an often wholly disingenuous rhetoric. Um, it's not necessarily the same people who were endor- endorsing um, this idea um, who, who were, um, you know, the people who were out on the streets were not necessarily active members of the ACS, but it really shows that colonizationism, I think, contained a violently kind of exclusionary politics at its core that could be activated um, in, in the streets. And this is kind of one of the kind of clear examples we see of it. Um, and also, given the fact that I have I've mentioned a couple of times the widespread um, opposition to the colonization movement by many northern um, African American communities and activists, in, um, that um, really kind of very shortly after the movement was created, set themselves against it. And I think that this shows you the the fact that the movement persisted and even grew in the in 
in in sense defiance of the wishes of of the um, the kind of active core of, of black communities within the U.S. shows that the the kind of um, the violence behind the the movement itself that there there was a kind of disregard for the fact that the people who are ostensibly going to become the colonists and these exemplars of Republican ideals did not necessarily want that position that was being um, foisted upon them by um, whites who are imagining this kind of uh, this this role for them. And so, so that's that's really kind of the the I think the the function of thinking about colonization riots in in the context of the the larger ideas of the book. Yeah, and I think that one one of the points you made about how there's typically a focus on how you know, these movements are ma- mostly made up of, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class people. And yet, you know, there are people on the ground who are subscribing to these views and trying to sort of actualize them as well. It is really important for seeing how, as you said, how this movement develops and grows over time, even if it does eventually fail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting to think about those um, those efforts to to kind of translate it into a, a popular rhetoric uh, uh, of racial violence um, that, that we see in those riots because you know there's ebbs and flows in the the, the fortunes of the colonization movement and typically the way the story is told is that it's it's through the institutional um, lens and that when all of the abolitionists really attack the movement many of them themselves flip sides and withdraw and become colonizationists become abolitionists. Um, and there's a whole other institutional crises for the ACS. That is the decline of colonizationism until it, at a later point in the 1840s somewhat resurges um, and then ultimately declines again. And what I'm trying to show is in many ways that these ideas penetrated American culture more broadly, even at the moments when, for instance, the ACS was in financial crisis, which is the late um, 1830s and 1840s. Um, there was these ideas still held on, and we can see the resurgence of it in the eighteen, the later eighteen forties, as a product of the fact that there was um, at least this legacy of buy-in among many people to this idea, even if the the organization itself was, um, you know, in trouble as as an institution. These ideas, I think, tapped into something that um, was was being expressed more broadly, and that's what I was trying to trying to get out of there. And one of the things that you look at is how the sort of U.S. perception of um, independence and nationhood in Liberia when it becomes a sort of talking point and possibility, how that is like the colonization movement at large related to domestic ideas about black Americans and how people are talking about, you know, the possibility or, you know, lack thereof in some people's minds of nationhood for Liberia as, you know, an extension of commentary on the place of black Americans. And so what is going on there? Yeah. I I mean, I focus one chapter in my book really around the moment of Liberian independence in 1847. Um, and the, the moment at which it declares itself now the Republic of Liberia in in how that becomes invested with um, great symbolic significance for many different audiences. And and it's a kind of, I think it's a very kind of resonant moment for looking at the different things that are going on with the colonization movement. Um, And in, in the book, I focus on a few different ways that white colonizationists or supporters of the colonization movement in the U S were thinking about this one um, way is that it was allowing them 
at least nominally to claim that Liberia was an alternative place where African-Americans could at least technically become citizens of a republic, right? And so now <clears throat> this in some ways was, um, was, was an actualization of the promise or the so-called promise of that, um, that initial movement was that this was a colony, but that it would also ultimately become an independent nation. Um, and so, so this plays into some of the discussions um, that we're, we were talking about a moment ago in that, um, particularly in the Midwestern states, um, places like Indiana, Illinois, um, uh, Michigan, uh, Ohio, those states, we see a resurgence of interest in colonization-ism um, in the 1840s, and it plays out in, in many ways in the exclusionary laws that are passed by the um, state legislatures or um, written into state um, constitutions um, in those states. And in that, in that, those discussions, we constantly see the resurfacing of, of the idea that Liberia op- um, offered a model or an alternative for African-Americans that, that basically justified their exclusion from any sorts of civil citizenship or right to residency within those states. So, you know, they say, well, you can't, in some laws like in Indiana, explicitly um, banned African-Americans from migrating into the state um, and, wed- and wedded that to the creative creation of a formal um, state colonization board that would uh, aid in removing those African-Americans who lived in the state um, to go to Liberia. And, and then many states um, uh, kind of doubled down on, on different forms of exclusion from uh, all, all, all manner of citizenship rights. Many had very few in the first place, but uh, made it even stronger in certain cases. And all of this was linked to the idea that, you know, you, they, they can't be settlers in, in those states, nor can they be citizens in those states, but they could settle in another place in Liberia that was now um, an independent republic. Um, and so we see that playing in. On, um, I think, an important kind of into domestic political concerns where it's, it, again, a very disingenuous rhetoric and, you know, we shouldn't take it too much at face value. But I think it's fascinating to think about the, the fact that that is the, the kind of leg that they're standing on. They're not saying that they um, that African-Americans deserve no rights anywhere, but they're only kind of um, dictating a certain circumscribed context in which they deserve those rights. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to think about, particularly as we look forward, is that there's a lot of attention by whites on, on the, the symbolic significance of um, Liberia as a projection of, of U.S. power abroad. Um, and that it, it, in a sense, there, there um, is a repeated kind of fascination with what is often referred to as Liberia as a United States of Africa. And this phrase is used, um, comes up before even independence, but also at the same time as independence. And what they mean by that is that, um, you know, based some of its political institutions um, and uh, and cultural institutions on on the United States, and thus was really an exemplar of the United States putting its you know uh, political, economic, cultural stamp on the rest of the world. Um, and so it it kind of served as a way of thinking through, I think, different ways that the U.S. would articulate its power, particularly. Um, as we look further into the late 19th and early 20th century, when the U.S. is looking to other places and claiming to be bringing, um, uh, for instance, democratic um, forms of governance to those places, 
um, but often kind of with the with different agendas at play, uh, whether they be economic or, or uh, military agendas, and and very often bolstering the idea that it you know in some ways the goal was to make those versions of of the United States. So I think that's it's I think it's a rich site for thinking about that. The other thing, though, I think is really interesting to think about is the place that African Americans have in relation to that independence, because um, much of Black um, uh, uh, thinking about the the colonization movement in Liberia up to this point had been really aimed at opposing it and its racist assumptions, and really at this moment, there's a some to some degree a reconsideration of that among um, free uh, black leaders in the north who thought about you know this in, this moment at which. Liberia was claiming itself to be the world's second black republic after um, Haiti, and that it, there might be some avenue for African Americans to achieve um, independence or autonomy there. Um, and so, there's some investment by by um, by by black leaders in that prospect. Um, but it's but ultimately, I would say that there's a um, a, a kind of reversion to skepticism about um, the 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 kind of vision of, of independence that is advanced in Liberia, particularly around the way that whites are framing this and, and continue to really use it as a justification to only worsen the position of African-Americans within the U.S. That, that you know, despite the fact that maybe um, some uh, free African-Americans in the U.S. might look to Liberia as some kind of model of political governance or some prospect of, 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 of future hopes, um, that does not change the fact that the, the colonization movement in the U.S. is driven by um, white racial ideas and, and particularly ones that are aimed at vi- often violently at excluding African-Americans. And as the colonization movement sort of enters its, you know, kind of ending phase in a way, um, one of the things that you look at is how uh, the ideas of colonization, they shift from uh, being mostly focused on Africa to incorporating both Central and South America as particularly as sectional tensions increase in the country and how those uh, shifts are actually a sort of byproduct of that. And so what is going on um, during this sort of ending phase of colonization? Yeah, this is a kind of final kind of um phase to the the colonization story that I'm telling here um, that, as I mentioned before, kind of ends in the Civil War era. Um, And it's a really fascinating moment, I think, in a lot of ways, um, because what you have in the 1850s and 1860s is the emergence of the Republican Party and that the the anti-slavery politics of that party and the the different constituencies that it speaks to um, are are often themselves longtime supporters of colonizationism and are and predisposed to it. The, many of them coming from the Whig Party, which had previously been more supportive of colonizationist ideas. Um, and so, what happens as they grow in power in the 1850s is that you have the um, the reanimation of colonizationism, kind of one last time um, in uh, the era before and during the Civil War, and this ultimately results in the first, what I would consider to be the first federal colonization policy, which is advanced by the Lincoln administration um, during the era of the Civil War and the early years of, of his administration. And so 
um, you have this this impetus for it that is in some ways being driven by all the sectional tensions. But I think in some ways the the really important question to to think about in this broader story that I'm trying to tell here is is what you asked, which is why Central and South America, and I and we could also throw in there the Caribbean as, as part of that. And and in short, we can think about this as this region was seen as much more strategically essential um, to many U.S. audiences at the time in both economic and geopolitical terms. And but what but what you begin to see during the, the the kind of discussion of colonies during this era by the Republican Party is that you have a combination of the kind of racial republicanism that had been evident um, within the ACS movement and and in in the and that had been amplified at, that I just talked about a moment ago in Liberian independence but that being wedded to a more explicitly kind of economically focused imperial agenda for the United States and one that is looking even further um uh beyond um, the region. Um, and so it's it's being driven in part by interest in the, the specific character of the region that we have um, taking place in a lot of um, U.S. discourse at the time. Travel writers, diplomats, entrepreneurs are all interested in Central and South America for various reasons, particularly for the prospect of building canals, railroads, ports, um, coaling stations for commercial shipping, as well as coaling stations for um, U.S. military shipping. And this was aimed at, in many ways, trend, um, viewing the region as a base for resource extraction, as well as a, a kind of stepping stone to interoceanic transit um, between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and eventually imagining the, the United States having a greater kind of um, imperial presence around the globe. And I think that context is important because you do occasionally see flashes of the idea that Liberia, for instance, could serve as an entree to um, African commercial interests um, or military interests, and the U.S. military was very much involved in um, creating the colony and and and, and supporting it. But um, but during this period of time, it's it's very differently, I think, pitched in terms of what its significance is. It, part of it is to deal with the questions around um, the the black population in the U.S. and what would be done in the in the absence of slavery, and many. Um, white audiences did not want to see African Americans be part of the U.S. body politic, as I'd mentioned. Um, all those movements recently in the Midwest states, but um, but they also were not necessarily attracted to the idea of of Liberia, despite the fact that it was an independent um, uh, nation at that point. And so we see all, all this kind of energy flowing into that that region that is seen as part of America's future um, in, in both hemispheric terms and in global terms. And I think one crucial kind of context for understanding that is that it's really being pitched as a counter to a slaveholder's vision of empire in that region, um, which we see, um, of course, in the, the very famous filibustering campaigns um, that many people know about, um, led by William Walker in Nicaragua. But there's a whole host of others, examples of 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 um, slaveholders wanting to essentially reproduce the um, the institution of slavery throughout parts of the tropics in Central and South America and um, import or reinstitute the institution of slavery and colonize those regions um, for, for U.S. interests. And so you have, in many ways, the, the colonizationist model for the, this region 
of creating black colonies um, in Central and South America that would um, that would be, and it was again at this stage often ill-defined, um, but would either be part um, carved out of existing republics in the region, or would somehow be incorporated into those existing republics. That is seen as a way of countering, to some extent, the 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 vision of of slaveholders, which is to um, to kind of import slavery into those regions. And and I think if we think about it in that context, what you have are you know at this moment of sectional tension, two kind of com- competing visions of U.S. empire. Um, one that's being advanced by whites who are committed to slavery and extending the reach of slavery. And one advanced by whites who are at least nominally kind of committed to ending slavery or, or, or transitioning out of slavery. But both of them, of course, were, were aimed at harnessing um, those racial distinctions and hierarchies and ultimately imposing a vision of U.S. hegemony um, within the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so neither of these, of course, succeed, um, particularly because of, of the, the outcomes of the war itself. But I, I would argue that both really have important legacies and imprints on um, the future of U.S. empire going forward. Well, Dr. Mills, thank you very much for coming on and discussing your book. Um, I always encourage our listeners to become readers and pick up the book for themselves. Once again, it is The World Colonization Made the Racial Geography of Early American Empire. Um, In any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me.